Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and it is that time again to talk about uh, science tonight. We are going to be talking actually about the ocean. Um, but first off, as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Evidence-Based Radio Facebook page. You can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher, they usually go up sometime on Sunday. And you can also visit evidencebasedarata.com to find them there. And so, yeah, I am available throughout the week on the Facebook page. I try and post there fairly regularly, um, especially things that are more visual, things that are more uh, suited to that medium than the radio. I can tell you about a lot of things on the radio, but sometimes it's better to see things. I'm a huge fan of infographics. I think that infographics are an amazing way to show uh, data. Um, though I have talked recently a couple of times about a new way that people are trying to visualize data or not visualize data, but to convey data is um, by turning it actually into uh, what is the equivalent per perhaps of song, but uh, creating data sets that are um, sound data sets that represent kind of ranges and things like that. And I don't have one of those tonight, but I think that's a really cool way of um, looking at data from a different perspective. But tonight, we are going to be talking about the oceans. We're going to be talking about sharks for quite a while, because there were just a whole host of uh, stories about sharks in the last couple of weeks. So uh, let's dig in there, and then we will move on. So first off, I wanted to talk about a new species of deep water dogfish, uh, and that is a shark. And it was recently discovered in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, also in the Western Atlantic. It's named for Eugenie Clark, who was a pioneer in shark biology, known worldwide for the research, uh, for her research on shark behavior. Fondly labeled the shark lady, Eugenie Clark, who founded Moat Marine Laboratory and continued studying fishes until she passed away in 2015 at age 92, will now be recognized with another distinction, namesake of a newly discovered species of dogfish shark, said lead author Dr. Mariah Flegler of Oceana and colleagues. Co-author Dr. Toby Daly-Engel, a shark biologist at the Florida Institute of Technology, noted that Clark was very familiar with the Gulf of Mexico, and so naming the new shark after her is very fitting. Jeannie established Moat, and she lived on the Gulf of Mexico coast. She did a lot to advance our understanding of marine biodiversity there, so naming the dogfish shark from the Gulf of Mexico after her is the most appropriate thing in the world. Now, Clark's research was extremely innovative, and she dedicated her life to teaching people that sharks are not the dangerous beasts that most people perceive them to be, but are just beautiful parts of our nature, uh, or of nature, that are really not trying to do anything to humans at all. We basically are only of interest to them 
by mistake, very occasionally when we travel into their territory. And, uh, well, as of course you probably know, we are much more dangerous to sharks than sharks could ever be to us. Um, we are extremely good at killing sharks and it is a really huge problem that we need to find better solutions for because we need to not be responsible for killing these animals that have lived for eons. Um, so yeah, but anyways, getting back to this story. Um, and so the new shark is named Genie's shark, which is a really cool name, I think. <laughs> and, uh, it is also, uh, the scientific name is Squalus Clarke. And so it is a member of the dogfish sharks that are in the family Squalidae. Now, it was previously listed as part of the Squalus Mitsukuri species complex. However, new genetic testing and morphology allowed Dr. Um, Fluger and her co-authors to describe the shark actually as a new species. Deep sea sharks are all shaped by similar evolutionary pressure, so they end up looking a lot alike, Dr. Daly Engel said. So we rely on DNA to tell us how long a species has been on its own evolutionarily and how different it is. Now, of course, it may seem like a rather obscure distinction, but it is important to be able to properly count different species for research. This type of research is essential to the conservation and management of sharks, which currently faced a multitude of threats from overfishing and bycatch to the global shark fin trade, Dr. Pfluger said. Many fisheries around the world are starting to fish in deeper and deeper waters, and unfortunately, much less is known about many of the creatures that live in the deep. The first step to successfully conserving these species that live in deep waters, like the genie's dogfish, is finding out what is down there in the first place. And that is a big challenge because we don't know that much about what is down there in the really deep, deep water. Um, and so again, <laughs> if you're a regular listener, you know that I am very much of the opinion that we should be exploring the oceans much more than we are exploring, for instance, space um, and don't even get me started on this week's ridiculous uh, news that the current regime is considering actually going forward with the idea of a space force. Sigh. Besides, we literally already have a space force, just FYI. Um, we actually do have people in the Air Force who are considered part of a uh, what is equivalent to space force. And I think that someone even, uh, said on, um, that I even read that there actually is already a group of people whose name are the Space Force, um, in the U.S. military somewhere. So yeah, um, ugh. <laughs> Anyways, let's get back to sharks. Sharks are way better than anything else that's going on right now. <laughs> so, uh, next we're going to talk about, well, for a little while, we're going to talk about extinct sharks, but extinct sharks were super cool. So it's going to be good. Uh, so a rare set of fossilized shark teeth have been found at Janjuk 
a well-known fossil site located on Victoria's surf coast in Australia. Citizen scientist Phil Philip Mullally uh, and a group of paleontologists found and identified the teeth. I was walking along the beach looking for fossils, turned and saw this shimmering glint in a boulder and saw a quarter of the tooth exposed, Mullally explained. I was immediately excited. It was just perfect, and I knew it was an important find that needed to be shared with people. So the teeth belong to an extinct species of shark that is related to the famous megalodon. The shark, Karchar Ocles Augustidens, lived between 22 and 33 million years ago in the um, Oligocene epoch. And so it would have been as much as 30 feet in length and would have been a top predator hunting small whales. These teeth are of international significance as they represent one of just three associated groupings of Carcarales augustidens teeth in the world and the very first set to ever be discovered in Australia, said Dr. Eric Fitzgerald, senior curator of vertebrate paleontology at Museums Victoria. Now, the teeth were quickly identified as coming from the same species, and so the researchers suspected that they might have actually come from the same individual. They organized two subsequent expedi expeditions to excavate at Janjuk and found a total of more than 40 teeth. Now, most belonged to Carcarales augustidens, but they also found several teeth from a smaller six-gill shark. These smaller teeth came from several different individuals and would have become dislodged from their jaws as they fed on the huge carcass of Carcaracles augustidens, said Museum's Victoria paleontologist Tim Ziegler. The teeth of the six-gill shark work like a crosscut saw and tore into Carcarales augustidens like loggers felling a tree. <laughs> um, this is, it is a little bit graphic, so, uh, but I do want to finish the quote because it's a great quote, but um, it is a tiny bit graphic. Uh, the stench of blood and decaying flesh would have drawn scavengers from far around. Six-gill sharks still live off of Victorian off the Victorian coast today, where they live off the remains of whales and other animals. This find suggests they have performed that lifestyle here for tens of millions of years. Um, so I do want, want to warn you about that. There is another story that does have a little bit of, uh, of goriness to it. I have tried to scrape off uh, as much of the goriness as possible, but um, today there is a slight uh, warning as far as um, if you're squeamish, I do apologize. Um, but let us keep going. I'm hope, I hope that you'll be able to stay with me. Now, just to be clear, <laughs> this shark and others like it, including the Megalodon, are definitely absolutely extinct. And so uh, a couple of years ago, there was that awful Discovery Channel, quote unquote, documentary that tried very hard to say basically that megalodons were hiding out somewhere in the ocean and were still there. Um, 
also mermaids, which is again ridiculous. And, um, I have lots of bad things to say about those sorts of fake documentaries. But anyways, uh, the reason, of course, it's coming up again is because of the movie The Meg. Now, full confession, I am probably going to see it. Um, I am a fan of Jake, Jason Statham movies. Um, I think they're delightfully ridiculous. I, uh, love silly action movies. Uh, and so I'm almost, almost certainly going to go and see it. But of course, I understand that it is entirely fictional and that there is no chance that a giant, uh, megalodon is going to show up on any beach anywhere in the world. It's not going to happen. Unfortunately, it seems that a lot of people are not on that same page. People ask me every day, says Dana Errett, a curator of paleobiology at the New Jersey State Museum, uh, when asked whether or not people ask him about the megalodon and whether or not it's still alive. Uh, he says, <laughs> for good measure, the answer is no. <laughs> so megalodon first hit the oceans around 15.9 million years ago and was one of the last of what are referred to as the megatooth sharks. Uh, megalodon actually means specifically megatooth. Now, they could be up to 60 feet long and weighed over 50 tons. So they were huge. Um, I think someone said it compared them to uh, the length of a uh, bowling lane. So that's a pretty big shark. That is a very, very big shark. Um, it is the largest shark, obviously, to have ever swam in the oceans and was an apex predator extraordinaire. But again, it died out around 2 million years ago. For comparison, the largest great whites come in at around 20 feet long, so about a third of the length. Now, crazy fun fact, <laughs> this is apparently the length of the megalodon's penis. <laughs> a great white is about the size of the clasper or penis of a male megalodon, Peter Klimley, a shark expert at the University of California at Davis, said in a 2008 interview, uh, and which I could not resist sharing with you. <laughs> um, but interestingly, even though they share many morphological similarities, megalodon and great whites are actually not closely related genetically. Make the um, line that included Megalodon actually went extinct. So there aren't any extant versions of those particular uh, sharks. There are some that are in the sort of family, but not that particular shark itself. Now, Megalodon would have feasted on whales, dolphins, and seals, and it would have needed to consume a literal ton of food each day to uh, keep up with a proper calorie consumption. Now, of course, it had great adaptations to make this possible. Its teeth were serrated six-inch behemoths, <laughs> uh, which is why, of course, you find them uh, on beaches because they're huge and probably pretty hard to miss. 
And of course, it would have also had the strongest bite force of any animal, including things like the T-Rex, anything that's on the on the planet today, pale in comparison. Uh, it would have been able to crush cars in its jaws. Now, we know that they were predators of whales and dolphins because grooves have been found on the fossil remains of those animals, which indicate that they were on the menu for these ancient predators. Now, of course, much of what we know about this ancient shark comes from their teeth. Uh, as you probably know, sharks shed teeth throughout their lifetime, so shark teeth are a rather abundant resource for researchers which is good because the rest of sharks' bodies are composed largely of cartilage. This means that their skeletons rarely fossilize because it's not really a skeleton uh, the way you or I have one that's made of bone, but it's basically, someone described them basically as a giant ear with teeth. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, uh, now, cartilaginous bodies are great for fast swimming in the depths of the sea, but not so great for researchers who want to be able to study these animals once they uh, are no longer with us. But it's not all bad news because those teeth can actually tell us a lot. Teeth are really important, says Megan Balk, a researcher of paleobiology at the U Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History who has studied Megalodon, they interact with the environment and show how the animal feeds. Well, the, they're the best proxy for what, for the, sorry, they're the best proxy we have for these traits. Now, Megalodon was very successful while it was alive, but its extinction came around the time of the last ice age. Now, of course, one might think that cold water might have been a problem, uh, as fish are generally cold-blooded, though there are a few exceptions uh, that have weird adaptations to making them uh, actually have some sort of uh, approximation of warm-bloodedness. But with a huge bulk, the shark was actually probably rather well adapted to maintaining a body temperature, even in colder waters. So that's how a lot of um, animals that are cold blooded are able to live in cold waters is that they bulk up and then they have enough uh, bulk that they're actually able to maintain body temperature. So if that wasn't the reason, what do we think happened? Well, with the oceans icing up, sea levels declined, and that meant that coastal regions that were once spots for, for coastal nurseries dried up. An estimated 55% of marine mammals, the main part of Megalodon's diet, went extinct. This steep decline in food sources is probably what signaled the end of the reign of this giant shark. At the same time, new predators who were smaller and could sustain themselves on less resources emerged, including killer whales and the aforementioned great white sharks. So for better or worse, the megalodon just couldn't maintain its top predator status. And in fact, it couldn't keep up 
being here on the planet. They do not exist anymore. Now, some have suggested that they just went deeper into the ocean, and that's unlikely on many fronts, including the fact that the amount of prey available in deep waters would actually be even less than in shallow waters, and of course they wouldn't be adapted to the pressure and darkness of these lower waters. So even if they had fled to the lower depths, they would have evolved into something very different from what they had been when they were predators in the upper ocean and hunting marine mammals. They would be something completely different by now. And so it wouldn't matter if they were still alive because they wouldn't be the megalodon that people are looking for. And of course, I would just like to remind people that we are probably better off <laughs> by far that these incredibly huge, insane meat-eating predators are not uh, available in the seas to uh, accidentally bump into us. Um, of course, they probably wouldn't see us as a particularly tasty treat. Uh, we are lacking in blubber, even the roundest of us. <laughs> uh, but again, they might take a bite out of you, which might end up being half or more of you, uh, given their, uh, the, uh, span of their jaws. Uh, but of course it would be much like what happens when a great white does that to someone, which is that it's almost always a, uh, accident or they're trying to figure out what exactly you are. Uh, and unfortunately they don't have hands to poke you. So what they do is they take a nibble on you. And unfortunately, uh, as with many other animals, they don't necessarily know that their strength is going to be a huge problem when that happens. And so definitely probably good that they are not there. Okay. So, well before the demise of the Megalodon, shark species began to radiate out into many different forms. And so, prior to the Cretaceous-Paleogene mass extinction, that's the one that helped usher in the end of the reign of dinosaurs, one order of sharks, called the Lamnififormes, dominated the world's oceans. And so, those are the mackerel sharks, and they include today's great whites, thresher, and mako sharks. Now, the largest order of sharks today, the Carhiniformes, were rather rare prior to the Paleogene. And so, this group of sharks includes hammerheads, tiger sharks, and a host of other modern sharks. Now, after the impact of the comet, the two orders flipped, with Carcarahiniformes becoming much more diverse, and many of Lamninophores going extinct. Now, there are also other orders of sharks, including the, Hexanich the Hexanchiformes, uh, which are frilled and cow sharks, and the Heterodontiformes, uh, which are bullheaded sharks. This is an interesting and nuanced study that adds context to the end Cretaceous mass extinction event among two major lineages of sharks, Neil Ashleman, an evolutionary biologist at St. Ambrose University who wasn't involved with the research, told Gizmodo. 
Now, he went on to note that having a having the treasure trove of shark teeth gives researchers that ability. They were able to track different lineages in geological history, despite, of course, a lack of other fossil remains. Mohamed Bazi, lead study author and a paleontologist at Uppsala University in Sweden, along with his colleagues, measured the varying shapes of 597 ancient shark teeth from around the world, and those dated from between 72 and 56 million years ago. By mapping the various kinds of teeth, they were able to create a picture of the post-extinction shark diversity. Oddly, they found that lamniform sharks with wide triangular teeth died out while carcarhiniforms with the same tooth shape survived. They suspect that the change was again tied to food source. The lamniformes ate predominantly squid and marine reptiles, many of which also died out at this time. However, small bony fish thrived, and that was the favorite meal of the carcarhiniformes. Now, again, knowing about these changes could be important for understanding and conserving today's species of sharks, over 50% of which are currently listed as endangered, threatened, or near-threatened. By exploring changes in their diversity over millions of years, we might be able to assess the importance of various contributors, such as temperatures, sea level, and prey availability, as key drivers in shark evolution. Bazi told Gizmodo, Sharks fulfill a very delicate but important ecological role. Their demise may have terrible consequences for the health and stability of whole marine food webs. They are also remarkable creatures that capture the public imagination, though they are sadly misunderstood. Sigh. Okay, we are going to take a break and do some PSAs, and then we are going to come back and talk about another story, and uh, this one is a little bit gory. It is about a whale carcass, so um, again, uh, sort of squeamishness warning here, uh, but first we're going to take a break, so uh, I will be back in just a few moments. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day 
from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over five million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt! Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP. Bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Looking for an international experience but unable to travel? Consider hosting an adult international student studying English. Maybe from the Congo, Iran, Tibet, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Uganda, Tunisia, India, or Iraq. We need friendly hosts interested in a true cross-cultural interchange, fluent in English, and living within a 15-minute walk or convenient bus ride to downtown Northampton. Join ILI's nonprofit effort to create language and cultural immersion experiences for our students. A stipend offsets costs. For more details, go to www.ili.edu or email amy at ili.edu. We are the International Language Institute of Massachusetts in downtown Northampton. There's a monster under my bed. There's a monster in my bathtub. Mine is on my dresser. There's a monster in the kitchen. For a child with asthma, it can seem like monsters are everywhere. There's a monster in my pillow. There's one on the rug. The fact is, their next asthma attack could be triggered by something as innocent as a teddy bear or a dripping faucet, even a bath toy. I don't like monsters. Fortunately, there are simple ways you can help prevent their next attack, from putting stuffed animals in the freezer to kill dust mites, to drying bath toys and turning on the bathroom fan to prevent mold. They're easy to do, and they're part of a complete plan that could help you put an end to your child's asthma attacks. Learn more at noattacks.org or call 866-NO-ATTACKS. Make the monsters go away. Because their next breath is in your hands. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back. And I do just want to once again note that the next... Uh, story I'm going to talk about is a little bit, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit gory. Like again, like I said, again, I'm trying to uh, very much 
not have it be all that bad, but there is a bit of discussion of the fact that, of course, this is about a um, unfortunately dead whale. So, less misunderstood than mysterious are blue whales. And so that's why a team of researchers jumped at the chance to dissect a juvenile blue whale that had beached itself recently in Chile. So, um, Benjamin Cacares, a marine biologist at the Rio Seco Museum of Natural History in Punta Arenas, Chile, along with 10 other uh, researchers and helpers, uh, including Aymara Zegers, also from the Museum of Natural History, and Gabriela Garrido, a marine biologist, uh, who were the first researchers actually on the scene, were tasked with defleshing the almost 70-foot-long, approximately 70-ton carcass of the blue whale. Now, they need to be able to deflesh the whale so that the skeleton can be brought to the museum for study. Now, the location of the carcass, Punta Delgada, at the eastern entrance of the Strait of Magellan, and two hours north of Punta Arenas, represents the southernmost stranding of a blue whale anywhere in the world, and it actually marks the first evidence of a blue whale in the area of the strait. Now, even though they are found throughout the world's oceans, whaling caused over a 90% decrease in populations in the 19th and even into the 20th century. Their populations are still listed as endangered by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Researchers are only beginning to map ranges of individual populations through genetics and documented migration routes, and to label some of those populations as distinct subspecies. South Atlantic blue whales are one of the least studied, and so the opportunity to gather DNA and other information from this whale will, will prove quite valuable. Now, it turns out that this was a female whale, uh, she was apparently just about to move into her reproductive uh, age, which indicates that she was at least fairly healthy uh, before something caused her to die. Now, a necropsy was performed with samples taken from various parts of the animal, um, which may help to determine why she died, but unfortunately uh, may not. And so the work began just a few days ago, uh, and so is still ongoing. It will probably take about a week. Um, once the flesh is removed, the skeleton will be broken up for transport. Um, and so it will probably take between two and four years to prepare the body properly. And um, so what will have to happen is that everything will have to be really completely cleaned off and then things like um, repairs will have to be made uh, because many of the bones will have begun to break under the full weight of the animal as it is currently resting on land. Um, and also the bones will be treated to keep them from deteriorating as they uh, lie in um, or as they are on display. And so it's definitely something that will take a while. 
And so that will go, that task will go to Cacares's brother Miguel, uh, who is a visual artist. Uh, he will take charge of the bones once they are ready to be transported to the museum. Now, it's quite possible we will unfortunately never know why this young whale died. Um, it's possible that she was driven onto shore by a pack of five killer whales that were spotted by spotted by Zagers on the first day. Killer whales are the only known predator of blue whales, and so they will often separate calves from mothers and prey upon them. Now, of course, she was a little bit older, but she may still have been separated from her pod, and they might have harassed her, and uh, she ended up on shore. Now, if you'd like to see and or read more, I have posted the link to the Facebook. It will go up around uh, seven or so. And um, so if you would like to do that, you can do that. Um, but again, it is very um, graphic. I am not bothered by it. I think it's interesting, but I know that a lot of people probably will be uh, less than interested in seeing that kind of thing. And so, yeah. Uh, but one thing they've already found out about it is that uh, with preliminary measurements, it actually suggests that she is more similar to a subspecies known from the Indian Ocean than to blue whales from nearby populations in either central Chile or Antarctica. And so it may be that she was out of place uh, and just didn't know where she was because, I mean, these animals can travel for huge distances. And of course, uh, the oceans are all connected. Uh, there really is only one ocean <laughs> uh, when it really comes down to it. But uh, obviously, like I said, this is just happening right now. Uh, it's only been a couple of days. And so definitely it might be that we uh, will have to wait some time to find out more about this amazing animal and unfortunately why it didn't survive um and more about it just in general but uh blue whales are very amazing and like all of these other large marine animals really need protection that we aren't necessarily giving them all right let us move on from large animals and start talking a little bit about some smaller animals now um, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this, but you may not know about it because it's not exactly uh, something that impacts people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, but for several years, sea stars on the Pacific coast have been plagued by sea star wasting disease, or SSWD. And actually, it's, there are just uh, some uh, stars that are starting to be able to resist it, and so it's starting to get a little bit uh, lesser, but it was a huge thing um, for a long time. It began in 2013 and moved up the coast, where in 2015 it reached the coast of British Columbia, where it proceeded to wipe out 96% of sunflower sea stars in the region. This was similar to the toll it had taken on a number of other species of sea stars as it raged along its deadly path. Now, the disease caused the animals to 
basically turn to goo. Um, one researcher said that you could actually see arms detach and walk away from the rest of the body. It was really awful. Um, and so that is why it was referred to as uh, the moniker wasting disease. So Jen Burt, a doctoral candidate at Simon Fraser University and a Hakai Institute scholar, was shocked by the carnage she witnessed. When we showed up in the summer of 2015 to do our annual surveys, there were melted sea stars everywhere. You would literally be swimming on a transect line and you'd come across single sea star arms. And so for two years prior to SSWD hitting the Central Coast region, uh, Bert and colleagues had been monitoring how the reintroduction of sea otters was affecting the ecosystem. And so basically, it's a well-known fact uh, in these uh, waters and in uh, marine biology that when you bring in otters uh, or when otters are present, they help kelp forests to thrive by consuming kelp-eating sea urchins. And so she had noted a dramatic expansion of kelp forests as the otters returned. So it turns out, though, that the otters aren't the only things eating sea urchins. Sea stars do, too. But little was known about the impact that sea stars had on this larger cycle. The coming of SSWD was a devastating but highly educational answer to this question. Now, otters prey upon the largest sea urchins, while sea stars prey on small and medium urchins. Once SSWD hit, the population of small and medium urchins increased by 166%. In the same period, kelp forests declined in density by 30%. We had two years of healthy sea star populations, and then two years later, they were decimated, said Bert. Our study shows that sea stars play a key role in the resilience of these kelp forests. So what they found that sea otters acted more like a switch, allowing kelp forests to either be expanded or in their absence contract, while sea stars do the hard work of maintaining those forests' overall health. So while SSWD was a horrible disaster that again is just now starting to wane, these researchers were afforded a special opportunity to learn from this plague. And it shows how important having baseline readings can be when studying a sudden change to an ecosystem. And in fact, ochre sea stars, one of the species hardest hit by SSWD, seems to be making a remarkable comeback, most likely due to, well, evolution in action. There was a 74-fold increase in the number of juveniles surviving among ochre stars after the peak of the SSWD's damage. Now, the actual cause of SSWD is still somewhat uncertain. Researchers believe, researchers believe that it is a denzovirus, uh, which would have already been endemic to the region, but was triggered to greater virulence by some outside effect such as warmer water or ocean acidification due to global warming and thus became a superkiller. The concern is that marine disease, extreme environmental events, and the frequency of those are on the rise, said lead author Lauren Scheibelhut, 
if we have too many extreme events in a row, maybe they, that becomes more challenging for a species to respond. And so in the new paper, Scheibelhut and colleagues compared the DNA of sea stars from before and after the disease and found that those living today had a gene that resists the virus, suggesting that a period of intense natural selection occurred. When you've removed a whole bunch of them, you've shifted the whole genetic diversity of that population, says Chris Ma, a researcher at the Smithsonian Institute and a starf starfish expert. Now, while it's great that the ochre star has been able to adapt, other species might not be so lucky. The combination of large-scale climate change and other factors such as viruses or introduced predators might seriously threaten another species. Okay. So let's move on now and talk about something slightly different, but still in the realm of water. Uh, I wanted to talk about this because it's really interesting. And then uh, we should have time to talk about one more uh, sea-based species. So this is actually a freshwater green algae uh, called Chara bronii. And so this alga is closely related to land plants. And so by studying its genome, researchers were actually able to identify many important genes that originated in the common ancestors shared by the two groups. And so an international group of researchers led by Kenizawa and Kobe universities in Japan and the universities of Marburg and Freiburg in Germany sequenced and analyzed the genome of this alga, part of a division of plants called charophytic algae. And these basically are the closing, closest living relatives to modern land plants. It's great to finally have a genome from an alga closely related to land plants. This information will help us understand which land plant functions were truly novel said co-author Professor Charles Delwich, a researcher at the University of Maryland. And so when they moved to land, plants had to adapt a host of new functions, including developing roots that allowed them to attain nutrients from soil, stronger stems that could allow the plants to stand on land, and a whole host of other things. Our data show that a number of genes previously considered typical for terrestrial plants can already be found in these algae, said senior author Professor Stefan Rensing from the University of Marburg. This means that some important processes that occur when land plants grow are much more ancient than previously believed. In fact, some of these characteristics evolved before land plants even existed. Co-author Professor Rainer Hendrick, sorry, Hedrick, from the University of Würzburg, noted that Chara bronii exhibits numerous evolutionary innovations that had previously thought to only be present, present in land plants. For instance, the plant possesses the necessary genes to detect the presence of ethylene. Ethylene is used in a variety of ways by land plants. Given the huge number of roles ethylene has in plants, we want to know when the ethylene signaling pathways originated, said co-author Professor Karen Chang from the University of Maryland. 
Because we found that charabronii has ha has all of the specialized genes for ethylene signaling, it means that this ability is even older than charabronii. Now, the two plants, the two types of plants share many things. For instance, egg and sperm cells for the creation of seeds, tip growth, which allows for the development of complex roots for finding nutrients, and some of the cellular machinery for creating cell walls that allows plants to support their own weight on land. Most genes that play a role in absorbing and distributing nutrients are also found in the genome of Charobronii, said co-author Professor Dick Dirk Becker from the University of Warsburg. In contrast, high-affinity transporters for potassium, as exist in roots of land plants, have not yet been detected in Chara. This could mean that potassium is more easily available in water than in soil. And so again, this is a really cool uh, story about how we can sort of trace the evolution of the traits of land-based plants by comparing them to their cousins in the water. And so we can find out about really interesting complex evolutionary chains by studying extant species, which is really cool. Okay, finally tonight, a team of researchers led by Dr. Tomas Vega Fernandez of the Italian National Research Council and the Stazione Zoologica Anton Dorn, Italy, has made a discovery which is really fascinating. So uh, they found that a particular kind of uh, jellyfish is actually predated by a kind of coral. And this is just a crazy story. So the jellyfish is a uh, venomous jellyfish called the mauve stinger. And it's actually uh, one of the main jellyfish that causes stings in the Mediterranean. The mauve stinger is a hollow planktonic jellyfish with a phosphorescent bell 3 to 12 centimeters wide. It is typical of warm water, but currents may transport smacks of jellyfish into temperate and cold seas. Thus, it can be found from the tropics to the North Pacific and Atlantic, including the Mediterranean Sea, biologists noted. Now, again, uh, in the Mediterranean, it is one of the uh, most common uh, causes of jellyfish stings. And so, also in the Mediterranean is the predatory orange coral, Astraides calicularis. And so they actually are a reef-forming coral. Uh, in shallow waters, they can cover up to 90% of rocky substrates. And it's also found in caves and on vertical walls. Now, the species, it, species is polystomatitis. And so that means it forms small colonies composed of polyps, which are connected to each other as a single organism bearing several mouths. <laughs> now, the polyps are typically four to five millimeters in length, but larger polyps can grow up to eight millimeters long. So 
tiny horrors. Uh, definitely something that you could blow up into a, uh, into a movie horror. <laughs> but at the moment, they're, they are very small and wouldn't hurt you or I. Now, Dr. Vega Fernandez and uh, colleagues made observations in 2010, 2014, and in 2017 in different parts of the Mediterranean. And so what they found was that the feeding behavior begins when a mauve stinger becomes trapped under an overhang with abundant Asteroides calicularis. The pulsating swimming of the jellyfish moves the bell repeatedly against the overhang ceiling. A calicularis polyps first adhere to the bell, after which several polyps rapidly engulf the oral arms of the jellyfish, process lasting between one and five minutes. Single polyps are able to ingest the oral arm tips, preventing the jellyfish from escaping, while other polyps collaborate in ingesting pieces of jellyfish arm and umbrella. Some jellyfish escape these attacks or become released as many were observed lying dead on the seafloor with a hole on the top of the bell possibly caused by the predators. Although both species have been known for years, we had no idea that the coral could catch and eat these jellyfish, said co-author Dr. Fabio Badentalamenti, research director at the Italian National Research Council and honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh. And so this is really cool. <laughs> uh, it is the first time that this crazy uh, kind of thing is, is being observed where these polyps of coral are actually kind of catching and uh, eating these jellyfish, which is just crazy. No one would have thought this had they not seen it for themselves. Um, and so Professor Murray Roberts uh, from the University of Edinburgh actually says, this is a really fascinating observation. The conventional wisdom is that corals don't eat jellyfish, but these results show that we need to keep both our eyes and minds open to new discoveries. And that is a perfect way to end tonight. We need to be open in both our eyes and our mind to new discoveries. I love that. Okay. That is all the time we have for tonight on Evidence-Based Radio. Uh, please do stay tuned for uh, Civil Politics. They will be having another special guest. Um, I fear I don't remember who it is this week, um, but they are going to have another candidate on. So you should stay tuned to listen to that and get informed about uh, local politics as well as science. Have a good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.